Welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I'm joined by Nicholas D. Ball, the creator of DrumsInThe20s.com. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Hi, Bart. Um, I've been listening a lot, so it's exciting to, to finally be inside and, and have a look around. I like what you've done with the place here. Um, yeah, no, I'm a big fan, so it's, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, you're you're on it, man. You're you're here. Um, so uh, you obviously have this awesome website. You've got a deep passion for drums in the twenties, which is really a a special like time period for drumming. Um, and 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 you described it to me as this as a good way to frame this episode, and I think it's just wonderful. So I'm gonna we'll, we'll say this is today we're gonna talk about the development of drum technology during the twenties. All the crazy inventions and innovations, which I think sort of parallels like today. I mean, even throughout all of history, there's these like crazy inventions coming up, but it really hit a lot in the 20s. Um, And we're going to talk about some of the players, which you've got some special um, selected uh, music for us. I have. That is new on the show, which um, I'm just super excited about. Yeah, I mean, my specialism really is is in in jazz, ragtime and jazz, and the sort of development of of popular music from the nineteen tens through to the nineteen twenties and maybe early early thirties. Um, and yeah, it seems you know, of course, you know, as you say, that was a an era which was replete with all sorts of fascinating and arcane developments in instrument technology. Because you know, we start out in the, the late nineteen tens as the jazz age begins with something that's really just a collection of, of marching band drums suddenly sort of assembled and played by one person. But, you know, it's hardly the drum kit as we'd recognise it today. But by the end of the decade, it really is starting to take shape and all the bits you'd recognise, all the different component parts are really starting to um, become standardised. And the way that they're being used is starting to become mainstream so that, you know, that you can say there's definitely one way of playing the drum kit that's something slightly akin to what we'd recognise today. Um, yeah. but really to me, it always makes, you know, not so much sense to talk about instruments without hearing the way they were being used because, um, you know, it's obviously a period where lots of people are interested in the, the, the developments in the gear and it's easy to see photos. You know, we've got scans of catalogs from manufacturers, um, and you can, you can Google or, you know, search for photos of old drum kits from the twenties or whatever trap kits and consoles and all sorts of amazing, um, gear like that. But often I have people writing in saying, I've just bought a, a, you know, I found a console kit in a flea market. What do I do with it? How do I play it? You know, what should I be doing with it? And that's a a journey that I had to go on myself because I had a very similar experience. I I got into this music by um, finding a a drum kit in a junk shop here in in London um, for about 15 pounds, which is, I don't know how much much that is in dollars, but it's pretty cheap. So I just sort of bought it on the spot and thought, great, I've got this, you know, this vintage kit from the 19, I looked up, found that it was from the 1910s. And then found that I didn't know how to use it or what music it would have been played for or, you know, anything like that. So I had to go on this um, massive kind of school project, which I've, um, I've been on for 12 years or so, and I'm still on really. But um, mm. yeah, and the website um, that you mentioned is kind of the, the show and tell period for, for that, which is, you know, ongoing. And um, there's a fair bit up there already, but hopefully there'll be much more to come in, in the years to come as I kind of keep obsessively um, delving into this history and, and, and um, writing it up for everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, I just, it's so cool how you just said, like, you know, you didn't, rec- it, it, like, early on, the drum set didn't really look like what we have today, because it was these pieces coming together. And then it sort of just, like, starts to appear like what we have today. And and uh, there's a thing with a lot of these episodes where it'll be like, it happened 
in multiple different countries at one, you know, in, in a relatively short time. So it's like, it ends up in this 20s, like, <laughs> it's like the perfect it, it timing. Was in the, uh, <laughs> it was in the yes. air, exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah. So really what I'm sort of mostly specializing in these days is is um, trying to piece together what these drummers did. Because, of course, the problem is, um, as I say, it's easy to look at a photo. It's easy to look, easy to look at a catalog and see what instruments were around and find old period examples of them. You know, there, of course, there are people who've made specialisms of that. And I don't really claim to be a great specialist in the minutiae of, of gear design and, you know, nuts and bolts and different lug shapes and all this sort of stuff. But what I have really studied a lot is the way that this gear was used in, in the music in real life. Um, and the problem there, of course, is that that means you have to deal a lot with old recordings, um, yeah. which are, you know, at the start of the, the start of the jazz age in the late 1910s, we're talking about acoustic recording technology, you know, extremely um, limited amounts of, of sonic range. You can't hear, bass drums very clearly, you know, and mm -hmm. it's, there's so much surface noise and we're going to hear some, some musical um, examples in a, in a short while, um, which, you know, it's over a century old. And if you'll allow me a, a slightly tortured analogy here, it's a bit like hmm. we used to have a program here called a TV program called time team. I don't know if you ever had that over there, but no. it was basically a bunch of archeologists who would go to a historical site and dig stuff up and they'd pull something out and they'd, it would just look like a lump of mud, you know, soil of some sort. And they'd be, they'd be so excited about, oh, wow, look at this, look at this. And you'd be thinking, but that doesn't look like anything. And then they'd wash it and, you know, clean it up and sort of piece it together. And, you know, it would turn out to be some ancient Roman vase or something. But, okay, yeah. it was still knackered. You could see it was covered in dirt. There were bits chipped off it. But you could tell that there was, there was something of incredible beauty underneath. And that was really interesting. Yeah. You know, I think I have seen that on YouTube. It's a kind of a short guy, like a little bit balding with like... That's the uh, guy. He, He's a host. Yeah. He also did like the deadliest jobs in. Um, yes, Tony Robinson. He was on yes. Blackadder. He was Baldrick in Blackadder, a great sitcom. Yeah. In okay. The, yes. In the eighties. Anyhow, so yeah, so listening to those old records. I mean, I know it's it's a ridiculous analogy, but it's for me, it's a little bit it. like that. You have to you have to kind of hear through the crackle and the distortion and the and the poor quality. You know, particularly for these really early early twenties and, and late tens recordings, and there is good stuff going on underneath, but it just takes a bit of. I mean. Some of these recordings that I'm going to play, I really do advise if you found it hard or you weren't getting much out of it on the first listen, just wind the podcast back, you know, 30 seconds and listen to it two or three times. And it, I promise you, it really does. You do start to hear new things in it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's something that it's a skill that kind of you do have to um, become acclimatized to really. Sure. We all get used to the modern recordings and you take for granted, you know, hearing a bass drum really clearly. But uh, like you said, there's just not that much. Um, I mean, it was probably one microphone in the room or like a horn they're playing into, yeah. into like, you know, um, into the, the stylus. Uh, you know, yes. that's a whole different thing. But um, absolutely right. So how do you want to proceed here with let me know if we should be playing music or cue it up or if you want to talk about the gear first, you okay. know, whatever you would like to do. Well, I think what. We've already had, I mean, I've, I've already heard a couple of excellent episodes about um, the silent film and theatre and pit drummers and traps and all that sort of stuff with all the bells and whistles and sound effects. And I mean, that's a whole other world, which I've, I've kind of done a bit of and branched into a little bit, but I think you've covered that so excellently already. Um, that Thank you. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of take us on a slightly, um, a parallel path that was going on around about the same time with obviously some of the same gear being used. But this is really, you know, what I mainly do, which is which is the jazz, the jazz stuff, which of course at the time was probably the most hip and the most cutting edge um, popular music form around. Um, and so maybe we're going to sort of 
look at really the story and the evolution of jazz drumming through the through the twenties or from the very late tens through to the, the late twenties, um, looking at some of the main players. And as we get to each new development in technology, maybe I'll, I'll sort of introduce that as we go. Yeah, and we can we can hear it being played, and we can also talk about it a bit. Um, that sounds so. Great. If that's okay, we'll we'll take a look at the way things were um, when the jazz age began, or just before in the late nineteen tens. Um, of course, at this point, really the prevailing um, musical style was ragtime, um, which began, you know, sort of, I suppose, around about the turn of the century, 1900s. And really, by the time you get the first jazz band appearing, which is 1917, the first band to market itself as a jazz band, at least, um, a lot of the ingredients for what you think of as jazz were already present in sort of late period ragtime. Um, and then you get these hybrid styles for a while, like, uh, jazz, which is a sort of precursor to jazz. They changed the spelling. Originally, mm. it was jazz with two S's. Um, and and ragga jazz and all these different sort of um, uh, monikers that were used for this type of music that was really a, a transitional genre from ragtime into jazz. The thing that ragtime didn't quite have, which came along with jazz, and really, I mean, there weren't recordings made down there, so we don't really know, but it seems like New Orleans was the epicenter for for these other ingredients that that weren't in ragtime which is the sort of uh, the blues element, which isn't really present in ragtime, blue notes, bent notes, you know, slurs and, mm-hmm. and growls and that sort of stuff. And also the, um, the sort of emphasis on brass and reed instruments because ragtime, you know, there were small groups. I mean, people tend to think of ragtime as a, a piano-based music. And of course it was, you know, you've got Scott Joplin and Joseph Lamb and all those guys. But um, there were also small bands playing ragtime, you know, quartets, quintets, you know, the perfect precursor to your, your modern jazz combo. Um, in the in the late 1910s playing this stuff. But it was all on banjos and violins and mostly string instruments. But they were drummers. And the drummers often played some of the most cutting-edge stuff. They mostly improvised their parts. They weren't just reading. Um, and they would play time, you know, mostly styles that was um, evolved from military band music. So it was mm-hmm. two-beat music, you know, like with two strong beats in a bar, beat one and beat three, kind of like you'd have with a, you know, in a, in a rock beat these days. Sure. Um, And so they'd be playing that on a bass drum, usually using some kind of pedal. Of course, the first, you know, modern, quote unquote, modern pedal came around in 1909, but there were other ones as we've, as we've learned through listening to various episodes of your podcast, there were precursors to that with all sorts of crazy um, overhang designs (laughs) and arcane uh, stuff going on there. Yeah. Um, Sort of uh, Heath Robinson designs, but yes, they'd be playing the two beat feel on the bass drum mostly playing time on the snare drum like you would in a military band, only, of course, they were making it much more um, syncopated and, you know, exciting, mm-hmm. playing all sorts of hip accents and, and you know, rudimentary stuff on, on the – or rudimental stuff, I should say, rather, on the snare drum. And occasionally um, moving to a woodblock uh, for a bit of variation because the whole thing was to, to variate chorus to chorus depending on what instrument was, was taking the melody or, or, or you know, leading the, the tune – you'd play a different accompaniment, a different texture behind it. Um, hmm. But unlike modern drumming, where you often would have, you know, you've got your right hand on a cymbal, you've got your left hand on the snare drum, usually, you know, this sort of thing, your hands are spread apart on different instruments. At this point, most of the time, the drummers would focus on one sound at a time. So you'd have both hands on the snare drum, next chorus, both hands on woodblock because of different hmm. instruments playing the melody. So um, maybe now we should hear a bit of, a bit of how this would sound. Um, yeah. So this is a very early piece of jazz, um, not the very first jazz record, which was made in January 1917, but this is from, I think, 
1917. And this is a, a band called Earl Fuller's Famous Jazz Band. The drummer is John Lucas. Um, and we're going to hear a bit of a, a tune called A Band Contest. He starts off playing some march-like sort of rhythms on a, on a deep snare drum. You can hear it's a really deep, you know, deep snare drum with a calfskin head. Probably one of those um, single tension snare drums, you know, with the thumb screws yeah. underneath. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, proper sort of marching band type type instrument. Um, and then when they go to the verse of the song, he goes to woodblock and cowbells. You can hear him playing all these sort of trap trap sounds on woodblocks. And then the chorus comes back and he returns to the snare and you can really hear um, the change of texture as the, as the snare comes back in. So um, cool. yeah, let's hear a bit of that. John Lucas with yeah. Earl Fuller's Jazz Band. Here we go. Yeah, very neat. I love hearing how it, um, you know, you really appreciate it more when you have like a lead up to that, like you just gave us. Like, I love hearing the, um, how they were playing, you know, one instrument at a time, snare and then woodblock. And it, am I crazy or was there a little bit of a symbol there towards there the was. end? There was. At the end, yeah, there was a big smash on a on a sort of probably quite a big, heavy symbol. But, I mean, we're yeah. going to get onto symbols in a, in a short while, but yeah, well spotted. Absolutely. Yeah, there was a, there was a symbol crash in there too. That's why I left that on just <laughs> didn't fade it out earlier because I thought it was worth just hearing. Yeah, there probably was one symbol there. Um, often they screwed the symbols directly to the shell of the bass drum and just smashed it. Yeah, yeah it wasn't it wasn't subtle. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't want to do it all the time, and, and you're not doing. Uh, I mean, but still, it's very good drumming. It's very military, like you said. Um, it is, you know, but it's also got a. Kind of- yeah, it's also got almost a kind of a, a rocky type energy to it. You know, it's very yeah. full on. There's no messing about. Um, no, I was headbanging I, 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 that entire time. Yeah, it is. I love that about it. It's almost like punk rock. And I think if you were around at the time, it would have been mind-blowingly hip and exciting. You know, you wouldn't have heard yeah. anything like that ever before. Um, so it's no wonder that, you know, people went absolutely a bundle on, on all this stuff. No, definitely. Um, okay, so we've, we've got some kind of very, very, very early dawn of the jazz age um, jazz there. Um, so we now run into a, a bit of a problem because it seems like from 1921 onwards, round about then, there seems to have been implemented by recording engineers, sort of an unofficial ban on drummers using full kit in the studio. Hmm. Um, the thinking Weird. being apparently that it would interfere with the um, vibrations of the, the cutter, you know what I mean? And overload yeah, the, sure. also distort the recording. Now we've just heard snare drum being played really loudly and it, you know, it didn't seem to have any problem. 
And on the ODJB, which was the very first jazz band that recorded uh, a couple of months before what we just heard, um, Tony Sbarbaro, who was the drummer in that band, he's playing double drumming on his bass drum and he's pounding away with a pedal and it doesn't seem to be any problem at all. Um, but for some reason, from 1921 until about 1924, five, six, round about then, depending on which label we're talking about and which studio, um, yeah, yeah, drummers were, were restricted to using only, usually only woodblock, maybe a cowbell, maybe a, a cymbal. Um, Gosh, that's so, I would yeah. think that like, it would be more effective. I mean, obviously this is super early, but it's like, okay, first off, we'll separate things a little bit more, uh, yeah. put it on some sort of a floating, you know, like floor where there's some space. And I would think that like bass, upright bass or something, as we all know, these low notes are really what rumble and shake things up. Or, or tuba even more. A lot of these bands were using tuba as, as the bass instrument. Yeah. So yeah. Band the tuba, not the drums. <laughs> well, yeah, I think maybe it was the, it was the kind of vibrations of the feet pounding. Cause a lot of these pedals remember weren't, weren't excellent designs yet. You know, we're still kind of on the way yeah. towards your, um, your modern DW bass drum pedal. So <laughs> yeah. um, perhaps they needed quite a lot of welly to get them going and that maybe that shook the floor. I'm not sure, but anyway, yeah. so we're confronted with this recording band. So for the next oh, four or five years, all the drums you'll hear on records are are um, what I call recording traps. So like I say, woodblocks, cowbells, cymbals, which is a real shame because, of course, it means that we we have less information about what these drummers would have played live, right, which is a real drawback. Yeah. And, I mean, of course, you can conjecture and you can look at sheet music because, of course, there was published sheet music for bands, you know, local bands playing, even professional ones, where there are written out drum parts because even this early there was drum notation. Um, you know, for kit. So you can see sure. what they would have done live, but there's no evidence on recordings. So, um, you know, it's, you have to do a little bit of kind of reading in between the lines and a bit of educated guesswork about what might have happened on these records. Yeah. But nevertheless, there, wa- there was quite a bit of interesting stuff recorded. So we can hear maybe a bit of recording traps now. Um, this is an unknown drummer who I, I can't find any information about who this was, but um, he's playing some recording traps and woodblock and cowbell playing some kind of... Um, Three over two, almost like sort of what I call ragtime clave rhythms, which is yeah. that back it do back it do back it do back it do back and back you know that sort of thing. Um, sure. uh, so yeah, this is the Cinco Jazz Band, May nineteen twenty two. Um, we can hear some early twenties uh, recording traps. Cool. Here we go. Hot lips. There's that symbol at the end there, almost sounded like a symbol mute kind of. Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of the time you have to remember also that a lot of the frequencies are being lost with the symbols as well. Like a lot of the symbols sound incredibly dull and, you know, kind yes. of like 
you hear the low frequencies, but you don't hear any of the kind of the shimmer on the top. So yeah. I don't know whether that was just, you know what I mean? Because it's early recording yeah. technology. Is that just what it did to a nice sounding symbol? And, you know, we just hear the kind of the nasty overtones or not. It's, it's hard to say. Um, yeah. But certainly we're going to, like I say, we're going to, we're going to get onto symbols in a very short while. My only other thought with that too, is it's very uh, like, so this is 1922. Two. It's very yeah. trap. E. You know, it's very, it, I have that silent movie drummer feel. It's such a shame that they almost limited them by not letting them use a full kit because it falls it more into that, um, yeah. you know. But in a, minute, yeah. in a way, it makes some interesting um, challenges yes. for us drummers trying to reinterpret. In fact, I've just literally last week, we released an album which we made back in um, 2019, but it's finally come out, which is called um, The King Oliver Project, where cool. we took some recordings by King Oliver, who was a great, um, probably heard of a great um, cornet yeah. player who was born in New Orleans, recorded in Chicago in the early 20s. In fact, he recorded his first record was made the year after the one we've just heard. And Baby Dodds on that record, um, again, is playing recording traps. Um, but because we were recording it now, we transcribed a lot of King Oliver's records and stuff. And so we made the decision, oh, let's try and record it how it might have sounded live. So of course I used, you know, 28 inch bass drum, snare drum, everything else, and tried to kind of re, you know, retrofit almost what Baby Dawes might have played live, knowing what he sounded mm. like later in the decade. Um, yeah. And I'm not the only one to do this. You know, I'm sure lots of other drummers who are specialists in this have done similar projects in the past. So um, yeah, it's, it, it brings its That's own awesome. challenges. Yeah, we'll, we'll share that in the uh, show notes so people can hear it and check it out and support you and, and all that good stuff. Oh, well, that'd be nice too. Um, yeah, cool. Sure. So we've heard what, what that's like. So maybe, maybe in... Uh, in a possible attempt to circumvent the um, the ban on on, on recording full kit, um, there were a number of kind of um, crazes for novelty instruments around this time. Some of these were prompted by manufacturers who came up with you know new designs for sort of novelty instruments. Some of which worked better than others and were adopted you know widespread. Others just kind of died out after you know a year or two. But um, the first one of these that we're going to look at, kind of novelty percussion instruments wasn't actually manufactured at all. It was just something that somebody picked up and thought, hey, you know, I can, I can use this. Um, I can play rhythms on this. I can, I can make an interesting sound. And that is the washboard. Hmm. Um, in 1923, yeah. um, a drummer called Jasper Taylor, who had a fantastic and incredibly colourful and vibrant life. Um, we're probably not going to get time to go too deeply into biographical details here for any of these, these artists. But um, if you're interested, um, he, he is one of the most... Um, so he yeah, had one of the most colorful lives out of all of these drummers. And uh, he's one of my early um, heroes that I wrote about on the, on drums in the twenties, because hmm. yeah, I mean, he was in the wild West. He was in, in world war one. He was all over the, all over the shop. He had an incredible life and he cool. uh, found a washboard on a, he said it was on a wood pile somewhere down South when he was playing with um, WC Handy's band. And uh, the first time I think he used it on a record was, was with um, Jelly Roll Morton. who was a great uh, New Orleans piano player in 1923 and very quickly there was this craze because you know other drummers being like what is that amazing sound he's getting scraping sounds and he's sort of tapping different areas of the of the washboard and getting all these different kind of resonant pitches um and he was one of the first drummers to really do this or certainly was the first to play washboard but he was also one of the first to play featured uh, choruses of solo you don't really get solos on drums this early, but you do get choruses of breaks, you know, where the band plays break, break or whatever. So, um, you know, they play stabs really. And he plays a, sure. he plays these improvised breaks. Um, 
And so really quickly after this, these records became a huge hit. We're actually going to hear him with um, the clarinet player, Jimmy O'Brien, who's a bit of a, a forgotten figure, but um, they made a lot of records with this band playing this kind of earthy, rustic, um, country-influenced jazz, mostly with uh, piano, clarinet and washboard. Strange lineup, but it really sold. Yeah. And people were people went wild for this stuff. So yeah, 1923, 24, 25, you get this big washboard craze. Um, other drummers that did this were Jimmy Bertrand, uh, Floyd Campbell, Buddy Burton. There are a few others, even Baby Dodds. Um, and what they would do, these guys, is put thimbles on their fingers and then scrape these washboards and tap them um, mm. in all sorts of interesting ways. They all had their own styles, but Jasper Taylor was the, the originator of the jazz washboard. So I think perhaps we should hear a bit of him yeah. because he came first. And this is the uh, the Washboard Blues from And that's awesome. I would have guessed <laughs> that that is someone tap dancing. If you told me that was a re- like well, the recording, I would have said, oh, they recorded someone tap dancing, you know, like just totally yeah. guessing. Yeah. No, awesome. I mean, you wouldn't be far wrong. It was a lot of these drummers did start out as tap dancers. Sure. And in fact, Jasper Taylor was one. Um, he was a tap dancer in this Wild West show when he was a teenager. So you're absolutely on the money with that, in fact, uh, hmm. there, Bart. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, using a lot of the same things. But of course, what you can't do with tap dancing is that scrape, that, you know, you can hear him tapping, tapping. So, um, yeah. yeah. So there was, like I say, I mean, these are, these are broad trends. They're not, it's not to say everyone immediately rushed out and found themselves a washboard, but, you know, it was certainly something that you suddenly hear lots of people doing in the, in the mid twenties, particularly black drummers on the South side of Chicago, which is where it, you know, there was this big scene. That's where Jasper was based. And a lot of the other guys that I, that I mentioned earlier. Cool. Um, cool. Right. So now let's talk about symbols because I mean, all of us drummers, we all love symbols. Um, you know, it's probably the one subject, maybe along with snare drums, that you get a bunch of drummers talking about symbols. You could be there, you know, for hours and hours. Um, the symbols, as as we've talked a little bit about before, you know, the the early guys in the early twenties, um, those symbols they don't sound great, do they? They sound quite kind of um, dull and and kind of heavy. That's yeah. because they were. You know, a lot of these symbols. I think we. I was listening to the um, episode with. Who was it? I think it might have been with Rob Cook, your episode about hi-hats and sock symbols and stuff. And, yeah, um, Skip Rutherford and, and Yeah, all, that, all about but, that stuff. And, and Rob mentioned yeah. about how these symbols, you know, in the early 20s, they were the only ones you could get, in, certainly in terms of Turkish-style symbols, because, of course, Chinese-style symbols is another whole thing. Um, the only ones you could really get in the early 20s were designed for marching band. You know, they were marching band instruments. You buy them in pairs. And they were yeah. designed to be portable, but also p- to project a lot. So they were kind of smallish diameters, but heavy as you like, you know, to, to mm-hmm. really resound. Um, and that's mostly what these guys would have been using. Um, mostly, I suppose, imported from Turkey. Obviously, you know, you've got old K's and stuff, um, but also lots of other brands that, you know, individual workshops and symbolsmiths working away in, 
in Constantinople and pumping them out and being imported yeah. to America. Um, but not with a lot of quality control. So really it was probably, you know, whatever your local music shop has, that's what you do. They would, they would be hung on a hanger, you know, with like a sort of a, like a mini crane thing. A lot of them were clamped to the bass drum hoop. And then you'd have a vertical post, maybe a foot or so long. And then another post going off at a right angle from that with a, with a sort of hook on the end. And then the symbol would be suspended on a leather thong thing, sort of knotted like a, like the kind of symbols that you'd clash together in an, in an orchestral. Yeah. You know, symphony orchestra. Really? And they'd just be hung off of that thing and you just, you know, smack it one basically with your drumstick. <laughs> yeah. Um towards the end of the song, just smack it. <laughs> yeah, basically. And and for the first few years in the in the in the twenties, like we've heard, the drummers would just strike them, let them ring, and that was it. You know, there was no kind of more complicated um technique involved than that. Um but around about 1922-23, you suddenly get drummers choking their cymbals in a rhythmic way and playing rather than just striking the cymbal once every, you know, at the end of every chorus, Oh, you know, we've got to a dramatic moment, smash. There you go. Um, playing, actually playing rhythm and playing time and using the cymbal as a timekeeping device. Cause up until now, as we've heard, it's just been snare drum and woodblock or occasionally a novelty instrument like your woodblock, like your washboard. Um, so yeah, 1923 onwards, really you get drummers playing, you know, keeping one hand underneath the cymbal so that it's choked and playing all sorts of different rhythms, but, you know, staying on that, on the cymbal for a whole chorus, maybe you might say, okay, hmm. trumpet solo, right. I'm going to play my choke cymbal behind that. Um, but the, one of the wonderful things about cymbals, of course, is they're so personal and distinctive. Everybody has their own cymbal sound and agonizes over, you know, what their ideal cymbal sound is and how can I best get that and everything, not only in the instruments, but in the way they're striking it, you know, the, the amount of sustain, the amount of, touch on the symbol and all this sort of stuff. So this is where we can really start to hear um, the personalities, the musical personalities of all these different drummers starting to come out. So what we're going to cool. do is now, I think we're going to hear one of the, um, the undoubted masters of, of 20s drumming, probably the, the big boy of 20s drumming, Baby Dodds, Warren, Warren Dodds. Um, and we're going to hear him playing with Louis Armstrong, another, <laughs> another person that perhaps yeah, everyone should have heard of. <laughs> yeah, big name. <laughs> Um, and this is from May 1927. So this is Louis Hot Seven. Um, and the tune's Willie the Weeper. And we're going to hear the way Baby Dodds is playing the choke cymbal behind Louis' solo. And what I really want people to listen to is, um, the type of the character of the cymbal itself. You know, what kind of cymbal is it? You know, how big do you think it is? How heavy do you think it is? And also the amount of, um, sustain that Baby's allowing. How long is he allowing the cymbal to ring for? How hard is he striking it? All this sort of stuff. Okay. Let's, let's have a listen to this. All right. Very nice. Yeah. So you see what I mean? He's, he's really using it as a timekeeping device, not just a, you know, for one strike and at a, at a big moment, it's regular time being played. Yeah. It makes you bob your head. Yeah. Well, this is dance music, you know, it's dance music. It's yeah. designed to get a, a floor full of people up on their feet, dancing around 
you know, for hours and hours at a time. Um, and there wasn't, you know, there weren't amplifiers, there weren't microphones in dance halls yet. So really, if you wanted to swing a band and get a room of people dancing, you know, you needed a large-ish heavy cymbal. I, I think you hopefully would agree that's what that is. Yes, sure. Um, now, by now, you've, we've got electric recording coming in. So you can hear the cymbals a little bit. You can hear the top end, you know, the kind of the sparkle and the, the ring at the top end of the cymbal a little bit more now. Um, but yeah, so he's, you know, really playing some pounding time on there. Um, and that's very much, you know, in his style, that's the way he, he played. And this is really the first, I mean, that, not that particular recording, but Baby Dodds himself was one of the first people to really ride on a cymbal in that way. But of course, it's not riding on an open cymbal with the tip of the stick, like we're used to, you know, in later styles of jazz, bebop and everything else, you know, you're striking the cymbal with the shoulder of the stick pretty hard and choking it with your other hand, with your, you know, your left hand, if you're, if you're right-handed. Yeah. Um, you would see videos and recordings of like some of the like forties guys, thirties guys, um, doing this similar technique, but mixing it in with uh, more like, you know, what we would consider traditional, like, you know, jazz drumming or drum solos. You'd see them do that kind of like, they almost like lean across the cymbal a little bit and kind of choke it, um, yeah. or do it to the hi-hat too. So it's, it's, it's they definitely do. a holdover from that twenties period. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got that's baby style, you know, kind of direct and, and powerful um, and kind of very with a rip, quite a resonant, you know, he, he allows quite a bit of sustain. It's not choked straight off. It's quite. Yeah. Um, let's hear how somebody else did it the same year. Um, that was recorded in Chicago. We're now going to go over to New York uh, the same year and hear the great Vic Burton, um, who was a kind of a. a a session guy and, and percussionist and, you know, all round maestro. Um, and he's playing with Red Nichols um, and his five pennies over in New York. And listen to the difference in the way Vic's doing it. Okay, here we go. Yeah, that is just 
the back and forth of the it's still kind of the one instrument of the at a, at a time sort of feel but i guess we're not really hearing as much bass drum because of the recording you know correct the quality at the time but um really cool love that yeah i mean he's playing there's a lot more notes in there he's a lot more kind of tricky and chopsy isn't he than what yes, baby was he doing. is yeah um he also had this technique which we call the tricky symbol technique where he's playing the underside of the symbol with the stick that he's muting the symbol with with his left hand if you see what i mean so yeah whilst also muting this choking the symbol with his left hand he's also playing the underside of it with a stick with two of his fingers so he's yes. able to play two two sticks at once on a choked sounding symbol which is which was like mind blowing for people at the time you could hear it a little bit in behind the um i think it was behind adrian rolini's uh, bass sax solo which was the second solo you could hear there's there was a bit of which he does you know sort of all these kind of like drags and roughs and things with two sticks you know rudiments played on symbol. So that's Vic's whole thing. He's, I mean, such a different approach. And there were, obviously, I could, I could have chosen so many other drummers that, that each had their own style as well. But I just thought those two, um, those two were nicely, you know, different to each other to, to give an idea that, you know, there's not, there's not yet one, one way of doing things. And lots of people are in, interpreting it in their own way. Yeah. They're, they're um, not, one's not better than the other. One is more, no. I mean, it's just like, it's like the different tool in your tool belt for each situation where one's going to like baby Dodds was way more uh, straight forward, just, you know, yeah. timekeeping. But um, yeah, what uh, Vic Burton did there was just very uh, I mean, that was that was flashy, you know? Yes. Flashy is a perfect word for it. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. But yeah, um, he was he was one of the first drummers to be really featured as, as kind of an equal with the other members of the band. I mean, all those I should say all those guys in that band were kind of you know, it was almost like a who's who of, of, of hot New York jazz. You know, those are the best guys on the scene at the time in that city. Cool. And he would be mentioned right up there with all the others. You know, you've got Arthur Shutt on the piano. You've got Jimmy Dorsey on reeds or whoever, Red Nichols on trumpet and Vic Burton on drums. You know, he would say, if you saw that on a record, you'd buy the record because he was a star in, in you know, in as much as a drummer could be at that time. We're going to take a quick break and I want to welcome a new sponsor on the show who's coming on board to support drum history and help make it even better. Dream Symbols. Dream Symbols creates B20 and truly hand-hammered symbols for today's working drummer. Each handcrafted symbol has a warmth that draws you in at low volumes, yet thunders with beautiful overtones when leaned into and opened up. These symbols come alive with an explosive attack but have undertones that are warm, rich, and dark. Each one has a unique, complex voice that will help you define your personal sound. The symbols speak clearly at all dynamic levels and sit comfortably and easily blend in any mix. Head over to dreamsymbols.com or at dreamsymbols on Instagram and find out what your dream sounds like today. Now, back to a look at 1920s drummers. So let's move on a bit and think about snare drums and the way snare drums were played. Because, you know, we heard a bit very early on with those kind of snapper um, you know, that was one of the models at the time was the snapper, these single, you know, single tension drums with the, with the, the thumb screws underneath. By the time you get to sort of 1923, 24, um, particularly Leedy and then lots of other companies copying them are really bringing in these much more, you know, modern to our eyes, uh, acceptable and kind of familiar um, dual tension snare drums with, you know, tuned with, with tuning bolts rather than with, with those, those crazy thumb screws um, that you tune with a, with a drum key that have got separate tension for, for batter head and, and the resonant head. So you can, you know, and adjustable snares and everything like that. So it's really a much more recognisable modern snare drum. And all the cutting-edge drummers, you know, by the mid-20s really were using these. Um, mm. Certainly Burton would have been in, and probably Baby as well, I think, by then. Um, 
So what do people play on them? We've heard the the early 20s style, which is much more sort of military and with lots of rudiments. By the, by the middle of the decade, it, it seems like mostly led by the, um, the drummers who'd come up from New Orleans at the start of the decade that were now all in Chicago, because of course that's where the recording industry was. Um, there wasn't really any recording in New Orleans until the middle of the decade. Um, and a lot of these guys like Paul Barber in, Baby we've mentioned, uh, Zooty Singleton as well, um, developed this, this style of keeping time on snare drum where you'd play four beats with one stick, keeping, you know, all four quarter notes. And with the other stick, you'd play press rolls. So you'd play like a crushed, uh, you know, a buzz roll um, on beat two and four. So you'd be playing, you know, dun, 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 yeah. that kind of thing, whilst keeping usually two beats on the bass drum still. Um, no one knows really who originated this, but um, Baby and Paul Barberin and Zuti, as I say, are kind of the, the, the three main guys who, and maybe Tubby Hall as well. Um, there's more about all this on the, on the website, but yeah, you can. You can That's very New Orleans. Yeah, and that becomes really popular um, throughout the middle of the decade. So, so quite soon, everyone's doing that, whether you were born in New Orleans or not. You know, it's, it's spread yeah, in sure. New York, it's spread all over. Um, and at the same time, you've got brushes becoming really established as a, as a thing. Um, often the brushes are started out as being fly swatters. You know, there were these wire fly swatters <laughs> that people yeah. um, would use with retractable wires that you could pull back into the handle. Um, the first use of them on record that I found is. Um, the great Chauncey Morehouse, who was a, a drummer from, um, I think he was from New England, but um, he um, he made a record in 1923, and I think that's the first time I've heard them on a record. I'm happy to be proved wrong, but I think that's around about the time they started really becoming popular. Um, and what the drummers would use the brushes for is usually similar to what they would play with the press rolls, only obviously a bit quieter. So you'd be keeping the time going with one stick, usually a right stick, but depends, you know, left-handed yeah. drummers the other way around. Sure. And the other one would be sweeping on the, on the two and the four and playing a strong accent, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and we're going to hear a nice example of that from um, Tommy Benford, who's a slightly lesser-known drummer, but he's playing with someone who's extremely well-known in this example. This is um, Jelly Roll Morton. And we're going to hear Tommy uh, powering a band along, quite a small band, but they're playing pretty loud, and he's powering it along using brushes, you know, no, um, no faffing around with the tips of the brushes. He's absolutely thumping these these drums <laughs> with the brushes, um, playing this lovely strong backbeat. And when it's behind the piano solo, behind Jelly Roll Morton's piano solo, you can really hear clearly what he's doing with these with these brushes. Tommy Benford with the uh, Kansas City Stomps. <laughs> Yeah, he's really 
whacking that uh, <laughs> snare and, and and that quarter note kind of feel of, on the upbeat really makes your like I said I'm just sitting here bobbing my head and and I love the yeah. like the syncopated little it seems like the little tag you know the little tag with the the uh, kind of muted symbol there is faster yeah. like they're they're doing things quicker and shorter you know yeah. it's choppy isn't it it's choppy in a good way. Yeah, in a very good way. It makes you want to dance, which is the whole point. I mean, all of this music was dancing music. Even the slower yeah. tempos, there were no, there are no really slow tempos, just as there are no really fast tempos in twenties jazz. It's all, you know, there are far quicker, there are faster and slower tunes, but it's all meant to be danced, you know, for people to dance to. So it's it's not going to be at extremes of of tempo or indeed volume. It's mostly you know loudish because. That was the whole point, you know, to, and yeah. the bands were just doing in the studio. They were just doing what they would have done on a gig, which was 99 times out of a hundred would have been, you know, people dancing. So yeah, he's pounding that, that backbeat out, isn't he? It's, it's yeah. really almost like a, like a rock drummer. It's like Ringo or something only, you know, <laughs> 60 years <laughs> earlier. Um, yeah, yeah. But it, like, so I wonder if it's, and you obviously would know this. I wonder if it's because like, if you did that with a, with a stick, you'd just be cracking. I mean, it would be too loud for the recording. And so if you're, using a brush then you can get away with a little bit more of a real hit on a yeah. recording because it's not so loud it, it's not so you know it cracking. may have <laughs> been that it may have been that or it may have been that he knew that in the arrangement there was going to be a piano solo quite early on and he thought oh mm. i can't be bothered starting off on sticks and changing to brushes I might oh, just, sure. just pound it and then probably <laughs> using the butt end of the brush to play that symbol you mentioned the syncopated symbol um symbol yeah hits there yeah so, yeah, so we've got, you know, some idea. I mean, called Brushes Have Been Going for a While. That was actually from 1928. But, you know, it's just a nice example that I happen to have on record. If I if I had more right. records in better shape, then, of course, I could have played something earlier, but I just didn't, you know. I'm not, no, it's great. I'm not the biggest record collector in the world. I've just kind of got what I've got. Um, yeah. Okay, so now we're going to come on to another one of these novelty instrument crazes. We've already had the washboard craze of 1923. 1927 uh, really was the hand cymbal craze. Um Billy Gladstone, who was a great orchestral percussionist in New York, mm -hmm. I think it's been mentioned several times on the on the podcast already. Um, he originated this idea. I think actually with Rob, you you mentioned it briefly that this idea of a handheld instrument involving two small symbols that you could strike with a stick and open and close with your with your other hand to get yeah. all kind of interesting um, syncopated uh, rhythms. Um, he was the first one to. I think he patented it in nineteen twenty seven, and it came out in the Ludwig uh, catalogue. There, it's called a Ludwig Gladstone symbol. Um, but very, very quickly, other, of course, other companies immediately jumped on it and started marketing them, you know, realizing that drums would sell them. And they were used mostly either for, well, I mean, partly for keeping time, but because the cymbals were quite small in order to make it, you know, portable and able to be held, um, they couldn't be so loud. So often drummers would use them for solo breaks. We've heard some solo breaks before with um, Jasper Taylor on the washboard. We're now going to hear, uh, I've mentioned him already, the great Zuti Singleton, the great New Orleans drummer Zuti Singleton playing um, starting off actually uh, a track with some solo breaks on on the hand cymbal. And in fact, he's using uh, a small instrument held in each hand. So he's got a slightly larger one in one hand, a slightly smaller one in another hand, and he's playing these syncopated. You'll be able to hear there's two pitches going on. Mm. Um, and this is the, uh, the introduction to Louis Armstrong's record, uh, Fireworks from 1927, with um, Zuti playing the, the hand cymbals. Cool. I'm excited to hear this. Here we go. Nice. 
nice. That was a shorty. That's that's so <laughs> that was a shorty. Yeah. <laughs> that's so cool, though. I mean, it's very uh, still. I mean, 1927. Everyone who's listened to this and knows the drum history stuff knows 1927 is the end of that kind of silent movie thing. It still has a bit of yes. that trap feel, you know, very um, it very trappy. So that's that's yeah. awesome. And I mean, you occasionally. I mean, there's there's a whole article I've written about hand symbols and actually comparing loads and loads and loads of different records. I should say, um, as I have done for quite a few different instruments that we've talked about, symbols and drums and other things, um, where I've found maybe I don't know thirty examples of different drummers playing them in different ways, and not everyone used them in that way. But that's a particularly famous opening to a famous record. So I thought, hey, let's stick that one in. Um, totally. Other drummers who who play them like Chick Webb, one of his first recordings, Dog Bottom, he uses um, hand symbols. That's in 1929. And there's loads of other other drummers used them. But it seems to last for about a year and a half. And then they all go, ah, fed up with that. And then they chuck them away. And um, not many yeah. not many records made with it. Because I think because things like hi-hat are starting to come in, um, which we can talk about maybe in a, in a short while. But yeah, it's quite a short craze. But while it was happening, it's a really, really, really big thing. And all drummers would have been like, oh, man, I've got to get one of those hand symbols. Um, yeah, but it's like, it's it's like n- yeah. nowadays you hear those like, uh, I don't want to say like auto tune or there's these like weird little like sounds that you hear on like pop songs that are around for like the summer or something, you know what yes. I mean? And then it goes yes. like, a, like a weird baby crying sound that was in pop, like in the 2000s <laughs> and yeah. it's like, then it's gone and it yeah. seems similar, but it's like, everyone's got to have it. And then it goes away. Yeah. Millennial whoop. That's called, I believe. Um, <laughs> okay. all those songs that I went, love oh, the millennial whoop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, drummers have always been suckers for, you know, gimmicks. I think we always have, Oh yeah. you know, every decade, you know, the new, the new idea that comes out, the new innovation, oh man, I've got to go and get one of those straight down the local shop, you know, um, whether it's power toms or fusion kits or anything, you know, going back yeah. as far as you want. So, um, that was just the latest one of those. Sure. Another novelty cool. thing that's around um, at the same time is, I mean, a lot of these things are trends. You know, we've talked about trends for um, different ways of playing the cymbal, different ways of playing, you know, brushes, snare drum, all these sorts of things. Um, one thing I couldn't really leave out, although it was a, a complete outlier and he was the only guy who did this. We've already heard from Vic Burton briefly, but um, because he was a classically trained percussionist and he could play tuned percussion, he could play timpani, and all this other stuff, tubular bells. There's an incredible photo of him with, you know, all this equipment set up around, surrounded by this arsenal of gear. Um, he was a specialist in this thing that he called hot timpani, where he would play walking bass lines, solo breaks, and all sorts of stuff on his timps, as well as playing kit. Um, hmm. So very briefly, you might need to fade this out because it's I've, I've, I've left quite a bit of stuff in because he um, on this example because gotcha. he starts off playing a timpani intro, then he goes back to playing this tricky symbol that we've already heard. Um, then he plays tom-toms and varying the pitch of the tom-tom by pressing on the, on the head with his, you know, his other stick, like you've heard, uh, you've heard, um, Krupa and all these other guys do. Of course. Sure. Then he plays woodblock and all this sort of stuff, but it's just such a bizarre sound. And like I say, he was the only guy who really did it, but it's, it's so fun. Um, and so amazing to hear timpani used in this way. I just thought I can't really not, not include this. So, um, yeah, yeah, we'll hear a bit of Vic Burton playing hot timpani with red nickels. This is Alabama stomp also from 1927. <laughs> 
tricky symbol. Yeah. Cool. Yep, back on the blocks. A lot of variety. Nuts, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you see what I mean cool. about how they were they were keen to vary the texture behind each new soloist. Exactly. It's sort of... To give um, them a, yeah, a different texture to play over. Yeah, it changes it up. I love that timpani intro. I mean, that's just... Uh, that was hot timpani, if I've ever heard yeah. of it. So, I mean, behind... Um, yeah, behind Miff Mole, who's the trombone player, behind his solo, he's playing cymbal. Then behind Red Nichols, who's the cornet player, then he's playing these Chinese tom-toms. And like I say, sort of muting them and changing the pitch. So you've got the doom, 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 yeah. all that sort of stuff. Um, then there's an ensemble bit where he played woodblock as you, you went back on the blocks and he was. <laughs> um, and then that, that was Jimmy Dorsey playing alto sax towards the end there. He's back on playing chromatic bass lines on the timpani. There's no bass player wow. in that band. So he's playing, playing bass lines. And it's just, it's so imaginative. And yeah. like I say, he was the only guy who did that because I mean, who wants to cut you know, uh, pedal timpani around to every game. Who can afford it for starters? Not me, that's for sure. Seriously. Um, so no. as far as I'm aware, um, the only person I've really ever heard do that um, since is my friend Josh Duffy, who who lives in um, in Davenport, Iowa, who's got, you know, he's got all the right gear. He's got some tune, pedal tune timps and he can do that. But I've never heard anybody else really um, who's able to replicate it. So no, that's yeah, such kind a, of a lost that's such art. A, but. No, but that's such a great, <laughs> point is like just moving this stuff around i mean really having a timpani yeah. and and you got to think too that this sounds so much different when you're watching it live and a lot of these really were meant to be for live and for dancing the point it was almost like a i mean correct me if i'm wrong but you know the the number one thing was to play these live around at dance halls and in hotels number two yes. would be on the recordings obviously because it's just not mm. as predominant right yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of drummers you see with like Sonny Greer from Ellington's band, you see him with timpani and, you know, mm-hmm. they, they could play them, but they weren't, 
masters in as much as they could retune the timpani as they were going and play, you know, all this sort of really complex yeah. lines. They might hit yeah. them once or twice per song, you know, where they, when it said so in the music. Um, yeah. But because Burton was such a virtuoso on all these different instruments, he could, you know, he could really do that. Or John Bonham yeah. later. <laughs> oh, John Bonham later. Yeah. A little in a bit slightly different. slightly different sort of context, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But probably the same okay. amount of drinking involved. I think all these exactly. guys were, you know, booze hounds. So probably not, <laughs> yeah. not that dissimilar in some ways. Sure. <laughs> um, so we're going to finish up with, we're getting to the late 20s now. We're going to finish up with um, looking at really where the music was going towards the end of the decade. Um, like I say, a lot of this stuff, there were trends going on. And of course, there's radio now and there's, you know, talky film, soundy films coming in. So that's starting to be a thing. And, you know, the spread of music is becoming quicker and quicker so that everyone can see, oh, that's popular. Okay, I'll do that too, which obviously earlier in the decade, it took more time to spread. Um, so you start to get sort of mainstream trends building up by now. Um, one of these really is um, what we'd really sort of later on start to refer to as the Chicago style of jazz, where there's quite a few players who, who did this, you know, Dave Tuff, George Wettling, um, but really, most of all, your mate Gene Kruper, who I know you've, you've had a quite a few um, podcasts with. By this point, he's probably 19 or 20. He's pretty young, um, but he's just, you know, making his first steps into the professional jazz world and he's appearing on the scene and doing this stuff incredibly well. Um, he moved to New York in 1928 and started playing with some of the guys actually that we've been hearing, uh, Red Nichols, Miff Mole, and a few of the others. Um, and what Gene really seems to have done that nobody else was doing quite to the same degree at this point, was using uh, a four-in-the-bar four bass drum and playing time on, on snare drum and on tom-toms and not really using cymbals much. Okay, he does use a bit of Chinese cymbal for accents, but um, really, you know, he called it moving the rhythm along on the drums. Mm-hmm. Um, and yep. he does this, you know, playing fills and interacting with the front line in a completely different way. We've just heard Burton and the way he played with um, with Nichols and Mole and, these you know, these session guys in New York. Now we're going to hear a bit of um, a bit of Kruper from um, the year after, and the difference that that his style of playing has on the band. Um, he starts off. Um, there's a, an unaccompanied. There's no drums rather during the, the first half of the clarinet solo. Then we'll hear him come in playing these press rolls, offbeat press rolls, and really driving the band. Then when the ensemble comes in, you can hear he's playing these tom tom fills and these Chinese tom tom, and the the kind of hurly burly excitement that he's able to generate. That's um, really kind of um, distinctive in this, this Chicago style that, 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 he, that he had. So this is Shimmy Shah Wobble with Miff Mole, 1928. All right, here is Shimmy Shah Wobble. Here he comes. <laughs> oh, yeah.
Man, that was great. It's a pumping four beat bass drum. Yeah. Yeah. It feels more, that's getting, it almost feels more modern. There's, it you does. can hear it, but there's, I, 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 at the beginning of this episode, you said, you know, people should rewind and listen a few times. I feel like if you, if you really do like careful listening or like, just like you kind of close your eyes and like almost mentally like zoom in on the certain parts, you yeah. hear it better. Um, and you just want to go like, turn the drums up, <laughs> but always yes, it's the recording. Yeah. Turn the crackle down. Yeah. 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 More, less crackle. <laughs> I mean, the oh, trouble is awesome. there are there, there probably are cleaner copies of these records out there that you can find. That's the idea. This is just a starting point. You know, it's what I happen sure. to have on my shelves. But um, yeah, it's almost like one of those. Do you remember those magic eye pictures from the nineties when we were kids? And you had to sort exactly. of see through the through, through, through the pattern, and then this thing would emerge. It's a little bit like that. After a while, you can sort of almost mentally tune out the crackle. But yeah. it is hard the first few times. But yeah, so yeah. you can really hear there he's playing these fills on the tom-toms and a and, and bit of Chinese cymbal. And also how, uh, what I didn't mention was the strong accents on beat four. One, yeah, two, really. three, four. One, two, three, boom. Boom. And that yeah. is really typical. I mean, you know, throughout the 20s that's going on, but um, it's something that, you know, particularly as we get into the swing era, which really that is kind of almost proto-swing, isn't it? You've got all this excitement with an even four beats per bar, um, you know, it's it's starting to get towards that, and I think that's as you say, it sounds modern. That's probably um, kind of what yeah. you know, what, what, what modern for modern. that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like, and, and and it's that that clarinet that's kind of like it almost like almost like drunkenly kind of like like it's just sort of like yeah. it's swingy. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. A wobble um, to go with the name Shimmy Shaw wobble. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it kind of is that, I suppose. So I mean, of course. He's not, you know, it's not like to say everybody was doing this by the late 20s, but the most cutting edge guys, um, Stan King, I should mention at the same time, Ben Pollack, Ray Duke. there are a few other um, similar guys who come up from you know, different places in the country, but by the late 20s, they're playing in a very similar way. I just didn't have any good records of them. So, um, and it's always nice to hear Gene because, you know, he's, he's kind of one of the oh, yeah. landmark guys, isn't he? You know, it's nice to hear him in a, like I say, he's probably a late teenager there and already playing sure. with these, these legends, you know, so um, yeah, it's yeah. a nice illustration of, of where where kind of that that music came from. Oh man, I mean, this just is so cool to hear. And first off, I just want to thank you for being so prepared and having these kind of chopped and the fades and everything. And <laughs> I like it's so much fun to listen like in real time with you and kind of like uh, and and to hear these. Um, but but really, the the amount of time and effort that you have put into it. It's just, it means a lot to me. And I'm sure everyone listening is like, you know, it's happy to, to be able to, you know, we're all hearing it together. Um, which is just too cool. Oh, great. Well, I mean, I love listening to it. So it's been fun just sitting here, having a cup of tea and talking to you really and listening to it all again. So um, sure, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no. Well, um, and I want to say too, um, so then Nick is going to, I mean, this just flew by, like really this just like absolutely flew by, um, an hour just completely went away. So what Nick and I are going to do is do a bonus episode, a Patreon bonus episode where I think it would be neat if we kind of focused more on the gear of like the collapse, collapsible bass drum, um, the snares you've been mentioning mm. basically going off of your website. Um, so yeah. Um, if people want to check that out, and usually I do a weekly bonus Patreon episode, um, go to drumhistorypodcast.com and there's a button for Patreon. Um, so on that note, too, why don't we tell people? Um, so, Nick, 
obviously, why don't you read off the website again and tell them how they can get in touch with you and social media and all that great stuff. Sure. Um, well, the website is very simple. It's just drumsinthe20s.com. 20 spelt in letters rather than in numbers. So T-W-E-N-T-I-E-S, um, drumsinthe20s.com. Um, but if you just search 1920s drums or anything like that, I'm sure it will come up because um, there's not that many people writing extremely yeah. uh, long-winded websites about <laughs> it. I seem to be uh, in a small little sort of niche on my own there. Good. Yeah, that's great. No, this is, and, and again, everyone listening can tell Nick knows his stuff. Um, so yeah, gosh, man, that just was so cool to hear this stuff. So what I'm going to do is um, I will put the song titles. I'll maybe do a little in the description. I'll share um, Nick's latest project that he did, and then we'll do the the link for the website, and then I'll have the names of the um, songs and just basically copy the information Nick has given to me, and um, we'll share it there. Um, but yeah, man, this is so cool. I just, again, I'm so grateful for you for for putting this all together it's just a kind of a brand new type of episode for for drum history <laughs> well i mean i don't know it's any it wasn't any great you know effort it's just like i'm i'm passionate so much about the way the instruments were used i think it tells such an interesting story as you you know once you've kind of got an understanding of the way that the developments in gear um reflected the music and, and influenced the way the music went like we say with all these novelty crazes and stuff and you know, why, when I listen to a Louis Armstrong record, is Zuti Singleton not playing drums, but he's making all these weird clip-clop, you know, sounds with these hand cymbals. Oh, yeah. it's because there was a big craze that started in 1927. You know, so it's, it's kind of, um, it explains so much of what might be misleading or, or hard to understand, you know, when you just listen to the music on its own. So hopefully yeah. um, it might do something um, to, to, to help people to understand. And that's really one of the reasons why I started the, the website, because... Um, there just sure. wasn't any place where all this information was gathered together in a in a reasonably coherent way. It was all spread yeah, around different books and websites, you know, that you had to find. Exactly. That's so that's such a good way to look at things too, of like, oh, what was going on at the time? Like I remember Mark Cooper on an early episode was like kind of like like reiterating to me that like, oh yeah, banjos were like the biggest in- instrument in America at a certain time. So that's why you heard a lot of banjo. Because oh, yeah. everyone was yeah. obsessed with banjos. <laughs> you kind of think like and even clarinet. I mean, you don't hear as much clarinet in pop music today. And it's like, well, that's no, it was massive. That's true. Yeah. I mean, ban- the banjo thing was just because there weren't amplifiers. So yeah. if you had to and play it live, it had to be loud and guitar wasn't going to cut it. So, you know, same with tuba for, for the bass instrument and the bass, you know, we heard a bass sax earlier on because a double bass, you know, doom, 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 you're not going to hear it. Yeah. So you have to think, keep going back and thinking about, yes, but what was the application for this? As you say, it's for dancing, it's for dance halls. Okay, records were made, but most of the time the bands were were doing their live show, you know, in a studio. Yeah. Even in modern recordings, if you have bass being recorded, you typically have to add distortion to it or some sort of interesting technique to make it cut in a recording. So bass has always been a uh, a bit of yeah. a tricky, you know, thing, but that's another that's bass <laughs> history. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Surely there's somebody out there doing that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, Nick, Mr. Nicholas D. Ball, I want to thank you for being on the show. And uh, again, if anyone wants to hear more about this, then um, check out the Patreon where you can hear a bonus episode all about the gear. It'll be about 10, 15 minutes and we'll uh, we'll chat and have a great time. So on that note, Nick, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Bart. Thank you. 
If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning. Keep on learning.